Good morning. Good to see you again. Greetings from FHBC to FHBC. I go to uh, Forest Hills Bible Chapel. So uh, we refer to you as the other FHBC. Uh, but it's good to be with brothers and sisters and to hear some testimonies and to worship the Lord with you. That was beautiful singing. Thank you for that special music and uh, for all the work that goes into the, uh, the other songs. If you haven't met me before, my name is Bruce Henning, and I, um, I know John Marco. I guess that's the reason I'm here. And I teach at uh, Cornerstone Theological Seminary. It's my priv- privilege to teach the New Testament there, and uh, I'm looking forward to walking through this passage with you. We'll be in Acts 14, looking at verses 8 through 28. I don't have it up on the screen, so you'll want to have your own Bible or phone or something like that. I remember thinking, look at these selfish brats. Thought that a lot in my life. I used to think this whenever birthday season came around for my young kids. Uh, Particularly when they were really little, my wife would just go all out for birthday parties. I mean, and each birthday party had its own separate theme. Pokemon... Star Wars, Mario Brothers, everything had its own separate theme. And the cupcakes and the napkins and the balloons and the banners and the crafts, everything matched and coordinated. So for weeks in advance, the the living room would be littered with all these papers and and blueprints of exactly how things were going to go. And it's not that the kids, when they came in, didn't enjoy the piñatas and all the things, but they just kind of looked up at it and went, okay, and then moved along. I would pull my kids into the back room. Listen, your mom spent a lot of time planning and executing this thing. You need to make sure that you thank her. Uh, To be honest, I also find it difficult to not take a lot of planning for granted. Just kind of show up and assume that all this stuff just, just happens. But it's important to give credit where credit is due and to make sure we acknowledge the ones behind the scenes. And that's really the idea, the big idea of our uh, passage today in Acts 14, the one behind the scenes. The text divides into three sections. The word goes out to the people of Lystra in 14, 8 through 20. And then the word goes out to the new churches in the next five verses through verse 25. And then the word goes out to the sending church in 1426 to 28. So we've got a really big unit, a middle-sized unit, and a small unit, and we'll spend our time accordingly. Uh, But as I read through the text, please keep your eye out, not only for this division, but also for the big idea of God as the one behind the scenes. So Acts 14, starting in verse 8. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright and on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. 
And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus. Paul, Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they went through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had fulfilled. And when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Luke has spent a good amount of time describing the, the, the missional direction of the early church. Started in chapter 1 by recording the words of the Lord Jesus, you will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in Judea, and in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so, I presume you've been watching this happen, right? Okay, it expands from the very epicenter of Jewishness and Judaism in Jerusalem itself, and the, and the gospel goes out. At least give me some sort of a head nod that I'm not completely off mark here. Okay, that's right. So you've been been thinking about this. That's great. And so Acts 14 plays a strategic part in that. Because now 
in a sense, for the very first time, we get to a really Gentile audience. Paul's been going out to the nations with Barnabas, but they've been mostly stopping at synagogues and speaking to Jewish people. It's kind of like if somebody invites you to go out for Mexican food and you pull up to Taco Bell. There's going to be something that kind of dies inside of you and goes, oh, well, I mean, sort of. But in the same way, they've gone to the Gentiles. And where do they go in Antioch? What are the synagogue? That's not really Gentile. And Paul preaches in the synagogue, but it's like the Gentiles are sitting in the overflow room, just waiting to hear the message as it extends to them. But we're in a very different context right now. We're not in the synagogue. We're at the temple of Zeus. So again, uh, Luke has carefully and strategically chosen each and every story for his own theological purposes. He's not just cramming a bunch of cool stuff the church did into a book. This is all arranged to tell a story. Now the gospel has gone out to a fully Gentile audience. In fact, there's a little bit of uh, background that might be interesting to you. Uh, let me look at these slides and remember why I put them up here. Here we have um, an old piece of pottery. It actually dates a few centuries before Christ, but the guy with the beard is Zeus, and the guy uh, that doesn't have a beard, this is Hermes. Or if you're reading the King James Version of the Bible, this is Jup- Jupiter and Mercury. I don't know why, but for a long time, people thought that what you had to do is go from the Greek into the Latin and then into English, and that's why the King James has those different names. Uh, so Barnabas they call Zeus, uh, maybe because he was older. Uh, the text says it's because Paul was the chief speaker, uh, and that's why there's uh, Mercury or Hermes without the beard. Paul would have been younger, younger than myself at, at this point in time. Um, so we have uh, also so we have pieces of pottery and inscription from around the Lyconian Valley uh, describing the, the worship of Zeus and Hermes at this area. One piece of history that I'll tell you comes from a man named Ovid who lived 43 BC to AD 17. So right around the time in question, a little bit before, he wrote this book called the Metamorphoses, and he writes a little bit of. Um, Greek mythology. He tells the story of Zeus and Hermes coming to the Lyconian Valley, so right around where we are. And he tells this, how they disguise themselves as mortals and come to a thousand homes but get no reception until they come to one old couple, Bacchus and Philemon, who take them into their simple residence and they, take, and they provide hospitality for them and Bacchus and Philemon realize that their wine, ga- wine glasses keep filling up and all these small little miracles keep happening around their home. And then they're brought out to their front door and they watch the whole place get destroyed with a giant flood and Bacchus and Philemon's home is turned into this huge temple and they become priests. With this story in our minds... You can see why the people of this area see a great miracle and they think, okay, now we're determined not to blow it. Zeus and Hermes have come back and we're going to make sure we give them the proper homage that they deserve. 
I bring out that story, not because I think it's interesting and have tried to weasel it into a sermon, but also because it really illustrates the fully Gentile audience that's in front of us. Whereas before, the stories that provided the backdrop were like uh, King David or Isaiah the prophet. Now we're in the world of Greek mythology. In fact, this Gentileness is all the more highlighted by the contrast this story makes. I didn't talk about that. Okay, we'll skip skip it. Uh, The contrast that this account makes with Acts 3. There are fascinating literary parallels between Peter's inaugural sermon in Acts 2 and Paul's inaugural sermon in Acts 13. We don't have time for that. But they're, they're, they're they're very similar in a lot of ways. But the events of Acts 3 and Acts 14 both happen at the temple gate. They both have this time in which the speaker will intently look upon someone who needs to be healed. And the person who needs to be healed is lame from birth. They both have this command to get up and walk with the result that not only does the man get up and walk, but that he jumps up and walks. Both accounts have two preachers, Peter and John in Acts 3, and then Paul and Barnabas in Acts 14. And in and bo- and both occasions, they say, it is not by our own power or godliness that this miracle has happened. You're tempted to give credit to the wrong place. In both passages, the, there are priests that try to punish the preachers and the miracle workers. They both describe a time of regrouping with the, with the disciples afterwards. And my favorite contrast is that after this great miracle is done in Acts chapter 3, the people praise God. And in Acts chapter 14, after this great miracle happens, the people praise the gods. Well, that little S at the end makes a big difference, doesn't it? It alerts us. There's a big difference between praising God and praising the gods. There's, for all the similarities that are there, there's a, there are very big differences. Whereas Peter can just jump right in to his Jewish audience. They know the story of the Bible. They have a biblical worldview. They believe in the one true living God. All right, we're up and moving. Let's start talking about Jesus and his death and his resurrection and the fulfillment of the prophets and how you can have the forgiveness of sins. But when Paul and Barnabas arrive on the scene, they've got more prep work to do. Because these people, when they see the great miracle, they don't just start praising God, they start praising the gods. It's worth pointing out that when Paul and Barnabas see this worldview that these people have, they don't turn to each other and say, well, you know, we are in a different place that has a different way of seeing things. We've just got to accommodate their own religion. Instead, when they finally figure out what's going on and are able to piece events together, what is that bull doing? Why are these reeds being placed on us? And they're able to figure it out. Their response is not just accept this as another valid expression of other people's own story, They tear their clothes and say, that's wrong, don't do that. 
keep in mind that this is in a day in which if you tear your clothes, it's not like you go to TJ Maxx and just buy yourself another shirt for 10, 15 bucks and move along as if nothing really had happened. I mean, to tear your clothes in antiquity is a, it's an expensive, costly gesture because clothes cost a lot of money back then. It's an expression of deep regret. When when Paul and Barnabas arrive on the scene, these people don't know about God, and so that's where they must begin. They must tell them about the true and living God before they can progress any further. And they express their incredible grief at the fact that these people do not believe in the living God. I mean, it's important for us to understand really what's going on to immerse ourselves in the strangeness that must have been there in the minds of Paul and Barnabas. You can imagine Paul, the Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, having someone put a wreath around his neck and where they were going to make a sacrifice to him. Think. I wonder if Paul thought, oh, if my mom could see me now, we are a long ways away from home. I wonder if Paul and Barnabas kind of looked at each other and they thought, what in the world are we doing here? I wonder if they even thought, this isn't going to work. These people aren't going to get saved. I mean, they're miles away. We could, when we talk to the Jewish people to whom all the promises were made, and it seemed like just the next logical, obvious thing, they've got everything necessary that's going to take the next obvious, logical step of faith to believe in Jesus. Think about all the animosity that was there. This project is doomed from the start. We might be tempted to think that this place was a dark and ignorant place. Maybe even to say that this is a godless place. But I want to point out to you that that is not the approach that Paul and Barnabas take. In a very real way, there is no such thing as a godless place. And that forms the core idea of the message which they preach. No, This is not a godless place. They were Gentiles, miles away from the biblical worldview, but God was already at work there. In other words, as we've been thinking about, uh, or as you've been thinking about, the light of the gospel starting in Jerusalem and then shining out to the nations, we, we shouldn't think of Paul and Barnabas or other missionaries taking God to these people. God was already there. Notice the logic that Paul uses in verses 15 to 17 and how he describes God. He says, you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven 
In Greek mythology, who's the god of heaven? You make very bad pagans. Uh, they are, the god of heaven is Zeus, right? He's the head honcho. Um, they had, in this area, there was a belief in like the mother goddess, like Mother Earth, um, who, made, who is the god of the earth. The god of the sea is Poseidon, okay? And uh, like the god of Hades, each is, or the god of hell, is, is, or the underworld is Hades, and so on. Paul simply dismisses all of these things as fake. Instead, turn to the living God. Now notice how he introduces this living God. There's all sorts of ways he could introduce him. Let me tell you about the real God. Lesson number one. And I wonder if, if you were, somebody were to say to you, if you were to introduce God to someone who didn't know who really the God of the Bible is, what would be one of the more important things that you would say, this is something you really ought to know about God's character and who he is, what his essential, uh, essential nature is, what his core acts are. Well, he is the creator who made all things, but Paul's argument is not simply that if there's a design, there must be a designer. If there's a beginning, there must be a beginner. But that the God who made all things is the God who gives you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. It reminds me of the old hymn. This is my father's world, and to my listening ears, all nature sings and round me rings the music of the spheres. This is my father's world, I rest me in the thought, the morning light, the lily white, declare their maker's praise. This is my father's world, he shines in all that's fair, in the rustling grass I hear him pass, he speaks to me everywhere. Paul's argument is one, not simply from design or from beginning, but about the aesthetic, about the beautiful, about the good. This is an incredible piece of what we might call natural theology. Does God care about making you happy? I know it's, it's, it's hard to like put yourself out there and answer a question because you never know what the, where the preacher's going to go. But let's, let's think about this. Does God care about making you happy? The answer must be yes. He, inca- he cares deeply about your enjoyment. Every good thing you have Every beautiful sunset, every delicious meal, all all the joy that comes from your children hugging you, all the intimacy of kissing your spouse, all the good things you have are tokens of his great love for you. Think of all the gifts God gives you without you ever asking them. 
moment after moment, he is filling your heart with gladness. I'm blown away by that fact. And then to step out of my front door and to look down the street and to see each house, all the good things that all of these people enjoy, they all come from God. Whatever a person thinks about him, to the atheist, the Buddhist, the Muslim, the Mormon. Moment after moment, God cares about making them happy and giving them good things. This is the kind of person God is. He graciously gives to people who will acknowledge the source as someone else. And yet... As long as these people continue to believe in Zeus, that wasn't stopping them from getting their rain and all their good things. The true God kept providing it for them. And yet, the application that we make is not simply that God gives good gifts to everyone regardless of their faith or unbelief, their obedience or disobedience, so what does it really matter? God, does, God obviously doesn't care. No, that's not the application that he makes. As, as he'll say later in Acts chapter, chapter 17, um, he, is, uh, he is not far, and he has done these things so that way people might turn to him. People would turn from the blessings to the blesser. He is giving himself witness here in chapter 14. And now the time has come that the light will shine all the brighter. But as important as all these things are, they logically follow from God as the creator. Um, One of the central questions here, that theological issues that Luke is trying to make us think about is, what are the terms of salvation for the Gentiles? Next chapter, Acts chapter 15. What do we do about these Gentiles who believe in Jesus but aren't keeping the law of Moses? Are they saved? And, of course, there they come to the answer, no. But here in Acts 14, well, they do need to believe in the one true God. They can't continue worshiping Zeus or Hermes. This is an absolute non-negotiable. Do you remember what happens with Peter when he goes to Cornelius' house? Remember what Cornelius tries to do? He falls down to worship him. And Cornelius picks him up and says, No, I'm a man just like you. Two chapters earlier, there is a man who accepts divine accolades. Remember? And, and, and the, the people say, It is the voice of a god and not of a man. Remember Herod? And he's eaten, with wor- eaten by worms from the inside out because he does not give God the glory. So, Paul and Barnabas, their whole endeavor gets interrupted. They don't finish the whole message, but they do, we do see where they start. We do well to catch the irony here. They're going along, and everything is actually going really well. They actually, it seems like they're, they're, they've, got a, they've got the attention of these polytheists. 
and they're convincing them about the one true and living God. And, and all is going well until what happens? The Jews come. And they stop all this monotheistic intervention. It's the Jewish people who come in, the Jewish opponents who come in and stop the proponents of monotheism and convince the polytheistic mob to stone them. Too blind to see uh, the good that they were actually doing. Now, one of the core ideas, again, of this passage is that God does care about making us happy. He's the one who gives us these good things. And yet, clearly, that is not his top priority. You can care about something and care about other things more. Though God is the giver of all good things, Paul is stoned in this chapter. God's goodness does not mean that there aren't such things as martyrs. Paul views all of these things as worth it. He goes through all of these persecutions because there's something more important, and that is that people hear the message about Jesus. He'll talk about this. Uh, for example, when in 2 Corinthians 11, he says, Once I was stoned referring to this event. In Galatians, there's some debate about this, but I think Galatians is written between Acts 14 and 15. Um, Galatians ends, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. Did Paul die? I don't know, but he was dead enough for everyone to think he was and to be brought outside the city. And then... I mean, I don't think anybody could blame Paul for saying, you didn't leave it all out on the court. I think you deserve a good break. It's time for you to go home. But that's not what they do. They press on. I've got a little map here for you. You can squint and see. Uh, Notice that they um, start in Antioch. They go to that island and then they swing up northwest into Pamphylia, and then they kind of keep going clockwise uh, until they go uh, to Lystra and then to Derby. They could keep going through Cilicia into Antioch. Notice that Tarsus is there. Maybe have mom, mom do his laundry or something like that. But that's not what they do. They do an about-face and revisit all the same cities, the same ones that gave them such a hard time. Because not only was it important that the unsaved Gentiles hear about the grace of God, it is also important that the new churches hear. In hardship, God is the one who provides their needs. Let me just say a few points here because I realize time is slipping away. Um, Paul and Barnabas could have written a letter. Paul likes to write letters. We got a lot of them in the New Testament. But these fledgling fledgling churches are new, and he wants to encourage them in person. He knows firsthand the hardship that that, that they are going to experience. And it's tempting for people in that situation to think, you know what? 
since accepting Jesus, things are going really bad. Maybe things are not happening according to plan. Paul's emphasis here is, no, when that happens, it means things are going according to plan. This is my end times chart, says Paul. First the tribulation, then the kingdom. And he says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom. So when things go badly, know that, things, that God has not lost touch. And he equips them with an incredible resource. He makes sure that he establishes elders in each church. Elders, plural, in every church. This is the biblical order. It's what he'll say in, in, Tim, I'm sorry, in Titus 1.5, I left you in Crete that you should appoint elders in every city. There's a great, a great quote here from the incredible scholar F.F. Bruce, his commentary on Acts. He writes, quote, Many modern missionaries would probably think it unwise to appoint as elders men who had so recently been converted to Christianity. Paul and Barnabas were more conscious of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in the Christian communities. End quote. Well, yeah, end quote. So we can think about it this way. From a certain perspective, it seems like none of this is going to work. Paul and Barnabas, you're getting in these boats, you're going around, you're preaching to people. You know that people are going to come behind you and just squash this movement, right? How is this thing ever going to last? And you're just going to visit and preach the gospel and then you're going to move on, maybe write them a few letters, visit every now and then? This whole thing isn't going to stick. Well, two things. He equips elders for leadership. And that's a vital part of the structure of the church. But then he says he entrusted them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Paul and Barnabas were going to leave, but the one who was really at work behind the scenes would stay. The Lord would be there. After all, this was God's work, and God would stay, and God would continue. And that's why as they go back home to our last unit here and report back to Antioch, to these people who had commended them to the grace of God. Sent them into the work. We're entrusting you to God's grace. Let's trust God and see what happens. Paul and Barnabas come back and say, it worked. We went to the craziest of places. And let me tell you what. God has opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. We saw the weirdest people. These people were... You can't imagine the things that they believe and the things that they do. But God is opening a door of faith for them. May God give us the same eyes of faith to see the one that is always behind the scenes. If it's in times of abundance and goodness to turn our eyes from the blessing to the blesser and praise him. 
if it's in times of hardship, when other people might not like us or things go bad, to realize that God is still at work. And scripture is very clear that this is the pattern, first the tribulation, then the kingdom. First the cross, then the crown. Or lastly, if it's as we strategize about the mission of God and we think about how we're going to advance the purposes of the gospel and we're, in, and we're tempted to think, the, this group of people, they're unreachable. I mean, they're so lost. They're not just like a little lost. They're really, really lost. To have the same eye of faith that the same God who opened the door of faith to the Gentiles in the first century continues to be at work today.